Amen. If you have your Bibles tonight, and you would, for the last time, I will ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. And so by the time we get back through preaching through the rest of the New Testament and get back to Matthew, I am liable to be an old, old man if the Lord allows me. So for many of you, no, I'm just kidding. I'll let your mind wander with that. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Matthew, the 28th chapter, starting in verse 9. Tonight I want to talk to you about living in victory. Living living in victory. We've looked at how the resurrection has happened, uh, how the angel has told them that he is risen, but then what comes next? Uh, The most important event in human history up until this point the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, His conquering of sin and death and the grave has happened. But now what? For those of us who have read the Bible, we know the book of Acts transpires and the gospel is preached and the world is turned upside down with the good news of Jesus, that churches are planted and people are saved. And up until this point, for over 2,000 years, the Lord has continued to build His church. But can you imagine the excitement, the fear, all the emotions that would be going on in the life of these people? I mean, just imagine uh, what it would be like to love someone and care about them like these individuals did for Jesus. We know um, from the reading of some of the other Gospels that there were women who were going to anoint the body and to fulfill the rituals of someone who has died. And so while they had heard Jesus talk about the resurrection, while they had heard about Him talking about destroying the temple in three days but rebuilding it, I mean truly in the course of human history, the dead coming to life, the resurrection of the Lord has happened. And at this point that we're looking at it, we have two individuals. We have, if you read there in verses uh, 1 of chapter 28 in that Bible that I hope that you brought to church with you tonight, uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. So I cannot imagine the excitement, the fear. We look here how he tells them to go and tell them what they have seen. Uh, We know by reading of the other Gospels that they did not believe when they heard the report of what had happened, and and so they had to go and see for themselves. But tonight I really want you to see this because so many times as Christians we live our lives with this mindset that if I can just achieve victory, if I can just achieve victory over my sin, if I can just achieve victory over my fear, if I can just get victory over our marriage problems, this idea that we are trying to win the battle ourselves, And while there is an aspect to Christian growth and uh, the process of becoming more and more like Christ, you and I need to be reminded that the victory has been won. And we don't fight for victory, we fight moving forward from the victory. And in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, one of the most... Uh, famous verses, you hear it a lot at funerals and other things. I want to read the words that Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Starting in verse 50 it says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Here it is. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And so he tells us this wonderful truth, but in verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I want you to see there in verse 57 because it doesn't say you win the victory. doesn't say you earn the victory. doesn't say you accomplish the victory. We're not studying military history, looking at Napoleon or uh, General Patton or any of those great commanders of the past. No, we are looking here that it is Him who gives us the victory. He is the one who has won it. He is the one who has purchased it. He is the one that has brought it. And what He does and salvation is He freely gives it to you and I. And so everything that we try to do to earn God's love and to earn His favor and to earn our place in His family is useless. Because why? He is the one who has won. He is the one who has made all of the difference. And so as I go forward in my walk with the Lord, and as you try to grow in your walk with the Lord tonight, I pray that you will understand that. That you are not living to earn God's love. You are not living to earn God's favor. You're not living to earn your place in the family of God. That it has been given to you through the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you and I can understand that truth, that Jesus has won the victory, that we are fighting a war and an enemy that has been defeated, even though we are called to fight, as I heard a sermon this morning, you and I need to remember that it is at this point a rout. If you've ever watched basketball, one of the greatest decisions they made in the last few years is this. The team is down by 30 points going into the fourth quarter. The clock never stops. Doesn't matter if it's a foul. Doesn't matter if it's out of bounds. Doesn't matter what it is. The clock just keeps on ticking. And you say, what does that mean? I don't know if you've ever been in a game when someone's down by 30, but ain't nobody happy. The subs are in. The kids on the losing team are angry. Some big mama's sitting up there in a stand because her kid didn't call a foul. And it's a miserable 48 minutes when that seven minutes gets drug out. But what they say in that last minute, which is called the mercy rule, is the game's over. 
There's no way they can come back, and so the time is just running off. And friends, I want you to hear the significance of that. Because when Jesus overcame the grave and sin and death, the victory was already won, and the clock's just running. At this point, we're just waiting for the trumpet to sound and the Lord to call His children home. And so tonight, I hope that you will look at that with me as we pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, thank You for being the reason that we have hope tonight. Lord, thank You for being the reason that we can look at a lost and broken world and have hope. Lord, thank You for while we can look at our own sinful selves with our failures, with our mistakes, with our shortcomings, Lord, that we can be loved by You because of what You've done. And Father, tonight I ask that as I preach Your Word, Lord, that You would give clarity of mind, Lord, that Your Holy Spirit would work and move to accomplish Your purposes. Lord, thank You so much for the men and women, boy and girls who are here tonight, Lord, in every area of this building. And we ask that You bless them specially. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we finish off this book with the mindset of victory in mind, the first thing I want to show you tonight from this text is that Jesus wants us to know and trust Him. Jesus wants us to know and trust Him. Look here in verse 9. And as they went to tell His disciples, behold... So they've already encountered the angel. They've already been told what they need to be told. But as they go, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held Him by the feet and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. What we see in this passage of Scripture is the Lord met them where they were at with the truth that they needed to hear that He was alive. And that they were not to be afraid. They were not to be overwhelmed. They were not to doubt all the things that were going on, but to trust Him, to know Him, what we see here in this passage of Scripture is they held His feet and worshipped Him. They were bowing down in a sign of humility that, Lord, we are Yours. And God, You are truly who You say You are. And everything we have is Yours. It's a sign of great humility and respect. And tonight I want to ask you that in your life. Do you really believe that Jesus has met you where you're at? Tonight, can you really say with 100% certainty that I remember when I was lost? And I remember when the Spirit of God began to convict me. And I remember what it was like when I repented of my sins and called upon the name of the Lord, and He saved me. And when I met Him, everything changed. My life wasn't about me anymore. My desires, my thoughts, my feelings, everything I have was His. And I begin to de- bow down and worship Him. You say, well, Jake, I've been saved, but I've never had that kind of experience. What you see here is someone who meets Jesus and realizes that they're not worthy. And friends, tonight, if you can honestly approach Jesus and say, Lord, I think that you got a blessing by getting me, you've got your heart in the wrong place. Tonight, you and I come to Jesus knowing that if He didn't overcome the grave, if He didn't die upon the cross, if He didn't become our substitute, we would be hopeless. But what we see here is Jesus said to them, 
Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren or the disciples to go to Galilee and there they will see me. I think this is instruction because Jesus tells them to congregate together. And for now, today, what would happen is this. Well, we can't congregate during the summer because we got a lot of other places to be. We got hobbies. We got things. We, we can't congregate more than one Sunday, one Sunday a month. Or some people would say, well, you don't have to congregate. You can just watch it online anyway. Same thing as being there. Or some people would say, well, church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. I can experience Jesus all by myself wherever I'm at. But what we see is Jesus says, get together because I'm going to show up. And I don't know how you approach church or what your mindset is when you come here. But if you come here to listen to me talk, you're going to be sadly disappointed. Because you can hear people talk a lot better than I can. And if your goal is just to come and listen to Jamie sing, while I love Jamie, you can find people on the radio that can sing even better than him. If you want to come to observe this beautiful building, you need to know something. There are beautiful, more beautiful buildings out there. But why do you come when you come? When I come, it is because I believe when God's people gather, and they gather in a spirit of humility, and they gather in a spirit of wanting to see the Lord move and work and change lives, that that's what you'll see. And so I come to believing that Jesus has a word for me. That Jesus has a relationship that I need to be involved in. Jesus has things in my life that He wants to correct and rebuke and encourage. And so I come hoping to meet with Him here. Now that doesn't mean I don't try to meet with Him in my personal Bible study time and my personal prayer time, but yet gathering together as believers is special. It's something that we have taken for granted. It's something that we have explained away. The writer of Hebrews says it, and I won't quote it because you have heard it over and over and over again. But it says, forsake not. And so in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, when Paul is writing about all that Jesus has done and about how He has changed everything, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says these words, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then all of the apostles. Then last of all, he has seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Paul begins to tell us that Jesus didn't just reveal himself to these two ladies. He revealed himself to hundreds, if not close to a thousand people, to show them that he is who he says he is. That he had conquered sin and death and the grave and wants His people to know that He was victorious. And friends, in the day and age we live today, the truth is still the same. God wants you to believe and know that He is alive. That He reigns on the throne of heaven. That His arms have not grown weak. That His power has not been limited. That He is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. 
In John chapter 4, Jesus talking to the woman at the well. Most of us have been in church long enough to know that she says, I don't have anything to draw water with, and I, I've got no husband, but I've had some husbands, and I've got one now that's not my husband, and you've, you've read the whole passage. But in Gen- John chapter 4, starting in verse 21, Jesus tells this woman about what it means to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming. And now this, now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The Lord wants you to worship Him. The Lord is wanting to reveal Himself through the Word of God, through the singing of God's Word, through through the power and working of the Holy Spirit so that you can learn to worship Him. That you can embrace who He is and what He has for your life. I believe most of us are okay knowing what we know and what we know about Him. And the idea of truly digging in more and allowing Him to work more in our life more in those areas of our life that we are okay with, that we have grown complacent with, bothers us. But what we see from this passage of Scripture is when the Lord overcame sin and death and the grave, He revealed Himself and wanted to be worshipped. So tonight I want to encourage you, do you know Him and worship Him? Second thing from this text I want to show you tonight is that there will always be those who try to hide and suppress the truth about Jesus. I think this is very important because right here in this moment of worship, this moment of rejoicing, this moment of instruction, we see verse 11, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. Now when they had assembled with the elders and consultant together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. Say, tell them, His disciples came at night and stole Him away while we slept. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will appease Him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day find this interesting because who do you think it was that came and told these men what had happened? Probably the guards or someone who had talked to the guards at the tomb. And they begin to hear that Jesus is gone. Jesus is no longer in the tomb. And what we see here is something very interesting. They didn't make this decision by themselves. They collectively agreed that something had to be done. This was not a moment of passion where they rejected Jesus. It was a willful attempt to cause a stumbling block for millions who would believe. I love the lie that they tell them because I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but they literally tell them to say you were asleep and they stole the body. Now, I don't know about you when you're asleep, but if I was asleep, I wouldn't know that you stole the body. How can you know anything when you're asleep? 
They could have said many things. We were intoxicated and could not defend ourselves. They could have came up with a lie that they were overtaken by the eleven or the twelve or twenty or forty, but yet they were asleep and the body was stolen. Makes no sense. But yet we see here that something happened because they're worried about the fact that what's going to happen when the governor hears. As we know from the Apostle Paul that if you're responsible for a criminal or a dead body or some kind of mission from the government in this day and time, that you are responsible for the outcome. If you remember when the Apostle Paul, uh, the jail was shaken and he was ready to bust out, the guard was going to kill himself because he just knew that Paul had escaped, that Paul had ran for his life. And Paul says, no, 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 I'm still here. What we see in this passage of Scripture, though, is, is a heartbreaking truth that even though these men had been presented the truth over and over again, they choose to reject it. But not only did they choose to reject it themselves, they actively kept others from knowing the truth. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. He says, I want you to hear this now because if you don't grasp this truth, when it happens, it's going to shake you to the core. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Jesus says, I need to tell you this because I'm getting ready to be gone. I'm going back to heaven and when I go and the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to send you and use you and they will throw you out of your place of worship. They will throw you out of the synagogues. And not only will they throw you out, they will begin to hunt you and murder you, and they will claim that they are doing God's will. And he says, the things I didn't, I didn't tell you this earlier because I was here. And when persecution came and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, I could put them to shame. I could silence them. I could correct them. But I'm not going to be here. And you need to be reminded of these things. And believer tonight, the greatest piece of advice that we can take from the Word of God is knowing that persecution is coming. Knowing that following the cause of Christ will be rejected by most of the world. And that that's okay. Because why? God told us it was going to come. In Acts chapter 4, if you have that Bible that I encourage you to bring on Sunday night and you'd like to flip over there, we're going to be not only in chapter 4, but verse 3. If you remember in chapter 3, there is a lame man. And Peter and John had went up to the temple. And this Bible says in verse 2 that he was, he was lame from his mother's womb. And they had laid him in the temple. He had asked alms from those who entered the temple. And when Peter and John, as you can read there for yourself, uh, he asked for alms. And in verse 4, And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. 
And so he gave his attention, expecting to receive something from. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he leaping stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Another man who made an encounter with Jesus and the power of God and was forever changed. And the rest of chapter 3 is all about the fact that they preach and that people believe because why? We knew this man. He wasn't some phony that Benny Hinn drug up on a television crusade that probably wasn't sick in the first place. This is a man who they had saw every day. It would be like someone sitting outside of this church every Sunday, unable to walk, or every Sunday being brought in here in a wheelchair. You've known them your whole life. Known their infirmity. Known their difficulty. And then one day, the power of God was unleashed. And they were cured. And they come marching into this church, not in a wheelchair, not on crutches, but singing and dancing and shouting and jumping. That was the setting that we see. So the same religious leaders that we have seen decided something's got to be done. We have to do something. So we see in chapter 4 that they were arrested. They addressed the Sanhedrin. And listen to what their response in verse 13 was. These same men who had crucified the Lord, the same men who had covered up His resurrection, say these words starting in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. There was nothing they could say. God has worked in this life. God has changed this man. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Is it not amazing how these this group of men is constantly being encountered with the truth of God and who He is. First, they secretly tried Him and convicted Him in the dead of night. Now they have actively worked against keeping people from knowing the truth. And now they are violently beating and arresting those who are spreading the truth. Friends, that's what happens when we embrace sin and reject Jesus. It starts with rejecting it. Then it starts to try to hide it. And friends, after a period of time, we will hate it and oppose it. Why is it that the longer a person is an atheist, it seems the more wicked and hard-hearted they become? Why? Because they have refused and are being put under the judgment of God. And so in verse 18 it says, So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the tame of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things we have seen and heard. 
So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Tonight I want to encourage you, never hinder the message of the Gospel. Whether it is through our unbelief, through our sin, or through an outright rejection of Christ, we see the dangers of that. But yet we also see from this passage of Scripture the hope that comes from being obedient to the Lord. Not everyone that they met was healed, but when God chose to work, this man was forever changed. And tonight you might not have been healed from an infirmity. You might not have been lame in both feet. You might not have been blind and God gave you your sight. But Jesus did a greater miracle in your life for you to put on display than anything else we read about. He took a dead person and made you alive. He took an enemy of God and made you a friend. He took an outcast that was an enemy of God and made you a child and joint heir with Jesus. And your testimony is that I am not who I used to be. Everything about me has changed since Jesus saved me. Does that mean you're not going to struggle with sin? Absolutely not. And I think when we first get saved, we first get right with God, we're like, I can talk to anybody because I can tell them about the change in my life. I can talk to anybody because they're going to know that I'm not the same person that I used to be. But the reason I think we get less and less passionate about sharing our faith is after you get saved, sometimes your temper still rises up and people see it. Or man, maybe you did something or said something and you're like, oh, I'd love to tell them about Jesus, but I think they were there that day that uh, that that waitress brought me sweet tea instead of unsweet tea and I just threw a fit. And I don't know why anybody would throw a fit if you didn't get dirty water, but hey, whatever you want to drink is fine with me. And boy, I'd love to witness to that waitress, but boy, I bet she still remembers that, you know. And so what happens is we allow the fact that God has made us brand new, but yet we have failed Him, hinder who we are. We do that with our testimony. Those areas of our life that are so horrific and so hurtful and so broken that we're ashamed to talk about with anybody else because we're afraid it's going to change their view of us or we're afraid they're going to look down on us or we're afraid of the pain and the suffering that it might bring up. We choose to bury that. When truly God wants us to recognize something that there is no sin that you can commit that's going to surprise anybody. There's no wickedness that affects me or you that is new to man. Somebody else struggles with your sin. Somebody else has been with your situation. Someone tonight might be struggling with the same thing, but truly believe there is no hope that God can work in them. And You standing up and saying, you know what? I was a drunkard and an alcoholic and I was ruining my family. But God changed everything. Well, that's an easy one, right? Because we're Baptists. We're all teetotalers. It's not an issue. Maybe it was your pride. Maybe your pride at work made you step out and do things to get a promotion that you should have never done. It's eating you alive. And there's some young person here today that's getting ready to compromise their integrity for a bigger paycheck. And you can tell them, I'm telling you, it will rob you of your joy. It'll steal what God wants to do in your life. But if you do make that mistake, remember that God can forgive you. I know that. I'm living proof. 
You see, we've gotten to the point where we don't want to talk about God's victories in our life because why? makes us look bad. And I'm here to tell you there's one thing about you and me that is universal. We are rotten to the core. We are sinners. Our flesh is weak. But yet the grace and mercy of God is new every day. I was reading from Psalms 52 in our afternoon service and that the Lord's mercy is continual. God doesn't say, I'm just going to be merciful when you fail. He is merciful always. He's merciful to you after you've been forgiven and you're trying to move forward. He's merciful for you after you've asked for forgiveness and you're still ashamed to bring it up. Now, I don't want you putting all your drama on Facebook. Please don't do that. I'm not on Facebook. But for some reason, everyone wants to tell me what someone else does on Facebook. And so while I cannot get away from it, you and I need to know something that we must be careful not to hide the wounds that God has kept from killing us. The wounds that you thought you would never make it through that God has delivered you from are the testimonies to a lost and dying world that you might be bruised, you might be battered, you might be crippled, you might be blind, you might have no hope on your own. But with Jesus, everything changes. Last thing tonight. Jesus wants the world to know the truth about Him. He wants you to worship and trust Him. There will always be people who will try to stop the message and hope of Jesus. But starting in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. See, even the disciples' faith was because of the grace of God. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. You see, what we see in verse 18 is that Jesus is telling them, I am totally and completely in charge. I have won the victory over the grave, over Satan, over death. I am in charge. And while we like to think we are in charge, or we like to think that we are the boss, or like to think that the world revolves around us, with Jesus it's true. And He is teaching them this because why? If someone sends you to the bank and asks you to get money for them, they write you a check and you go to the bank, you give them that. Why? Because their signature authorizes you to deposit that check and to receive the money that it is given. But if you take someone's check that doesn't belong to you, and some people are going, what's a check? Not in this crowd, but some of them that are watching. They'll be like, what's a check? I don't even know what that is. Stinking millennials. No, I'm kidding. I'm a millennial. I can say that. If you go to the bank without that signature and say, hey, I just got this person's uh, check. It was on the side of the road. I think I'll write it for any amount I want, and I would love to cash it. They're going to say, you are not authorized to write that check. You're not authorized to cash that check, and you are arrested for being fraud. What we see is Jesus is saying, I have the authority. 
Because what I'm getting ready to send you to do requires it. He says that, then he says, what is that? To go. To go and make disciples of all nations. To preach the gospel to the end of the world. To baptize them, to teach them the things of God. In Philippians, the first chapter, starting in verse 15, the Apostle Paul was dealing with the struggle that some people preach Jesus for the right reasons. Some people preach Jesus for the wrong reasons. And that is still the truth today. Pulpits all across America are filled with men who love Jesus, love the Word of God, love the church. Pulpits are full in America today of men who do it because they think it is a profession that is well-received or a wonderful paycheck. But what we see here is Paul was dealing with that and some people were preaching the gospel and it was causing him more harm. And in Philippians 1 verse 15 he says these words, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my change. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I will rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. Friends, I believe it is our responsibility to hold our church accountable, but I do not believe it is our church's job to believe the world's policemen for other churches. All we can do is hold ourselves accountable, our own motives, our own teaching, and if others are truly preaching the gospel of Jesus, even though if we might disagree with them on little things, we should just be thankful and encouraged and pray that God would use them to reach the lost. That God would use them to preach the gospel. That while we might not agree with everything, we trust that if Jesus is lifted up, if Jesus is pointed to, that He will draw men to Himself. But where do I fit into this equation? I didn't see the resurrection. I wasn't there in these passages of Scripture. But in the book of Colossians chapter 2, Paul asks them to do something for him. And I believe the truth is still today the same as it was then, starting in verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer. The people of God are to be a praying people. You say, Jake, I want things to change at church for the better. Pray. Jake, I want things to change in my marriage. Pray. I want things to change with my children. Pray. I want things to change in my nation. nation. Pray. Continue earnestly in prayer. Being vigilant with thanksgiving. If you want to know the second thing to do, be thankful for what God's done. Don't just always pray some needy prayer. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. Don't be like one of my children making out their Christmas list, right? What they ask for is way above my Christmas budget. But so many times that's the only thing we ask for. That's why if you've ever been here on a Wednesday night, we always say prayer request and praise reports. Prayer requests are not hard to get. Praise reports sometimes are. Friends, I think it ought to be the opposite. I think we ought to be so willing to praise God. We've been so blessed by God. God's been so good to us. I just can't help it. I'm ready. I'll, I'll tell you that God's been good to me. God's taken care of me. God's provided for me. God's worked and moved in our life. But why? 
I think we've become so afraid of what other people will think of God's blessings. We refuse to share them. But he says, pray, be thanksgive, thankful. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I also am in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. You see, Paul says, I want you to keep praying that God would open doors into cities, into towns, into people's lives that they will hear and believe the gospel. When was the last time that you spent time praying for a missionary that is in a foreign country? When was the last time that you prayed for your spouse as they got up and left that morning to go to work and say, God, just open the doors for them to be able to share Jesus with someone? When was the last time you prayed for your kids as they walked out the door to go to school or uh, to go to an event or somewhere where there's going to be other kids that they could influence and you just say, Lord, I pray that you'd open the door for them to share their faith. It's how I pray every Sunday morning and Sunday night and Sunday afternoon and Wednesday night is, Lord, just open the doors of opportunity. He was asking for opportunities to go into a place where the gospel had never been and to people who didn't believe. Why? Because he believed that God had a purpose and a plan to reach people and that people were worth reaching for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so tonight you might not be able to go on a mission trip. Maybe you can't go to Mexico or Honduras or Africa. Maybe you can't even go to Chicago or East St. Louis. Maybe you can't give. Maybe financially there is no money to give right now to missions. But what you can do is you can become a warrior praise. A man or woman who is constantly praying, Lord, open the doors for the gospel. Lord, open the door for my neighbor who is hard-hearted and rejecting the things of God. Lord, help the gospel be spread in places like Iran and China. Lord, open the door for the gospel to be spread in places like Washington and Chicago and St. Louis and Los Angeles and even little old Dalgren, Illinois. Why? Because if God doesn't build the house like we looked this morning, nothing gets built. God doesn't open the door, nothing gets done. While we can't open it, while we can't force it, what we can do is ask according to His will. And we know that if He hears us, He will answer. And so tonight, that's my prayer for you, for this church. Father, tonight we thank You for Your Word. Lord, thank You for the wonderful Gospel of Matthew. Thank You for the wonderful privilege to journey through it together over this last year. Lord, I pray that You would bless the reading, the preaching of Your Word. Father, tonight I pray that each and every man, woman, boy, or girl in this place would know without a shadow of a doubt, Lord, that they belong to You, that You love them and they love You. Father, tonight I pray for any influence in their life that is trying to hinder what You're doing. Lord, I pray for the most vile of atheists who has spent their life trying to remove Your Word from the public square or from any arena that they have influence over. Tonight, Lord, that You would speak to them and reach them like You did the Apostle Paul. But Father, tonight I pray for this congregation that, Lord, we would be bold with the mission that, God, You have given us to go 
pray to share Your message to a lost and dying world. Father, give us the boldness and the courage to know that, Lord, it is what matters most, taking the good news to a lost and dying world. Father, help stir in us a passion and desire. Lord, a fire that's grown cold to see people saved, to see lives change, and to see You glorified in all that is said and done. And so now, Lord, I pray for this time of invitation, this time of prayer, Lord, that You would work and move in each and every one of us for Your glory. And Lord, tonight, whatever needs to be done, that You will do it and give the opportunity for us to join You. And Lord, I ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.